Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp, and alongside me yet again, I have John Rojas. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to yet another episode. I wanted to remind everybody to continue to use our Amazon.com widget at the bottom of the page. Thanks, everyone who went ahead and did that last month. It actually provided a nice little source of uh, income for us to help the podcast keep rolling, pay for some bandwidth and some other cool shenanigans <laughs> um roach I-, I wanted to start off well first this episode of the podcast is going to be a little somber it's realistic but it's definitely thought-provoking the guest we have on today has been a little controversial we'll get into that in a minute but first i want you to tell our listeners about the experience you had at target the other day it's a good lead-in you'll see why cool no problem so the other day i was shopping at target as I was paying the uh, cashier, I pulled out my wallet, gave him the credit card, ran everything, and then left my wallet, started driving home, wanted to pick up some groceries, got to the grocery store and realized that I didn't have my wallet on me anymore. So I drove back to Target, went to the same cashier that I was at previously and asked him if he had seen the wallet, hoping that he saw it sitting there, picked it up, put it aside for me when I returned. But he said, oh, you know, actually somebody grabbed it you should go ask the customer service desk. So I just headed over to the uh, customer service desk and talked to the uh, the nice little girl that was behind there and asked her if she'd had any wallets turned in. Turned out that she did, and she gave me my wallet back. Now, I was completely shocked at this because, you know, I had a bunch of cash in it, ton of credit cards, and I figured, you know, if somebody's going to turn it in, they might turn in my my wallet with the license, maybe the credit cards, and just keep the cash. But everything was in there. 
So when I got home, I remember talking to all the roommates saying, I can't believe that somebody turned in my wallet. This was the greatest thing ever. There still are good people out there. And I remember saying that it wasn't a big shock to me because I feel like most people would return the wallet. So first I wanted to ask you and our listeners, if you were to find a wallet, would you return it? And would you, if there was any money in it, would you take it out? Listeners at home, think about it. What would you do? Well, personally, I would return it. I wouldn't take any of the money because I figure I'd want somebody to do the same thing. Now, what if you found outside of an establishment such as a Target where it's the only thing around, you found $500. Somebody just dropped 500 You take it or do you bring it back inside? I would probably take it inside and just say, hey, this was out there and tell them that I'd wait here with it for an hour. <laughs> and if nobody came back to claim it, I was walking away with it. I actually like like that answer because I was thinking you take it because you return it. The person you give it to is just going to pocket it and there's no way to claim it. All right. What if you found what you knew to be a watch worth thousands of dollars, say five, ten thousand dollars in a parking lot outside of this store. What do you do then? I would post about it on Craigslist Misconnections, and that's it. <laughs> I'd say, hey, All you right. must be missing your watch. All right. Well, you guys think about that at home. All this leads into our next guest is, as I mentioned, a controversial author. He's from Britain, and he writes about the idea that man is not inherently good, something that we often like to believe, that left to our own vices, we'd be good people, we'd act in the right way, and things like that. He also doesn't necessarily believe we're inherently bad, and you can hear in his interview how he describes it. I think it's pretty good. Our guest, his name is Anthony Daniels. He also goes by the pen name Theodore Dalrymple. As I mentioned, he is a British writer. He is also a doctor and psychiatrist. He spent almost all of his career working in a pretty bad prison in the east end of London. He had the opportunity to go work in, you know, nicer areas with more wealthy people, but he chose to do this for his career because he found it much more interesting. And the things he learned, the things he shares are very interesting, although he does seem a little skeptical because for 15, 20 years, if you saw inmates all the time, I believe you probably would be too. So he also has traveled to uh, parts of the country that are extremely poor, parts of the world that are extremely poor, and he shares some of those experiences with us today. He wrote the book, Our Culture, What's Left of It? It was ranked number seven as the most interesting book of the last decade by Skidoo. I don't know how reliable of a source you might think Skidoo is. He has written a column for the London Spectator for the past 13 years. He also frequently appears in the City Journal, British Medical Journal, The Times, Observer, etc. And he is published by the Manhattan Institute, where he is the Dietrich Wiseman Fellow. You can see him all over the internet. Check out his videos. We will now let you listen to our interview with Theodore Dalrymple slash Anthony Daniels. We were hoping yeah. you could give our listeners a look into your background and your general beliefs for, for those that aren't familiar with your works. Well, I'm a doctor, and uh, for quite a number of years I worked in the third world, and then I uh, worked in a, a relatively poor part of England in a general hospital and also in a prison. And I suppose 
a lot of my interest has been in the nature of poverty and the cause of poverty. And I've been against the kind of economism which sees poverty just as an economic problem. I know when I wrote you specifically, I was speaking of uh, your book, Our Culture, What's Left of It. You talk about how you chose to work with poor people and prison inmates because you had a fascination with evil and you wanted to understand its causes. Where do you think that fascination or that idea came from? Well, I think evil is always a very interesting subject. I mean, virtually everyone is interested in it. Um, I don't think anybody could say that he finds evil boring. I suppose it might come partly from the fact that my mother was a refugee from Nazi Germany. And also, in my travels, I saw a lot of civil wars. But at any rate, it reinforced my interest in what it is that leads people to do the most terrible evil. And when I returned to England, what I discovered is that without any external compulsion, quite large numbers of people are willing and want to behave evilly. Is it fair to conclude that you believe man is not inherently good? Uh, Yes, I don't think that man is inherently and necessarily evil either. Uh, I think uh, he has the capacity both good and evil. But I certainly don't believe that left without society, left without uh, any structure in life, man would be good. I don't believe in man as an innocent. Do you think that your work with criminals and things like that has made you skeptical? Or do you think that it's inherent everywhere that people can be good or evil? My mother used to accuse me of having um, a kind of distorted view because I worked in prison for so long and therefore tended to see, shall we say, the not the best people in society. Uh, And, of course, to a policeman, almost everyone is is a lawbreaker. But actually, I saw as much evil outside prison as inside prison. I became uh, very much aware, I think, that unless there's some kind of conventional structure against evil, uh, people will commit evil. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences while working in the prison? I worked as a psychiatrist in the prison and also uh, as a general doctor. I was on duty one night in every three or four for about 15 years and one weekend in every three or four for 15 years. So I, I saw an awful lot. In fact, I spent more time in prison probably than the average murderer by the time (laughs) I finished. But I found it a very interesting, of course, a very interesting experience. And there were things that were very uh, very encouraging. The vast majority of prisoners were actually able to think about what they had done if they were actually confronted with it. I'm not saying that it would change them and they would cease to be criminal. But they were not uh, a completely different population from the rest of the population. I I was surprised, in a way, that they were able to think about the world in moral terms. If they weren't irrational people, did you find what caused them to commit some of the most unimaginable crimes? Well, of course, most prisoners haven't committed unimaginable crimes. I mean, most criminals have committed unpleasant crimes. To have your house burgled is a very unpleasant thing. But they were not unimaginable crimes. One of the things in England, of course, is that the punishment of criminals was so lax 
that the question really is not why there were so many burglars, but why there were so few of them, since it was in many people's economic interests uh, to commit burglary. Uh, and I suppose, in a way, that proves that uh, man is not inherently evil. Uh, to give you some statistics, I think the fact is that uh, an average burglar in Britain will do one day in prison for every burglary that he commits. One day. And it must be within the capacity of every burglar to steal more in a burglary than he could earn in a day. I've never thought about crimes in an economic sense. Well, in this sense, crime actually does pay, and therefore the question is why people do not, most, even now, with, with the very high crime rate that we have in Britain, even now most people do not commit uh, crimes of this kind. Right. And indeed, you know, it's a relatively small proportion of the population that does commit crimes. What we find is that there is a refusal to incapacitate that small proportion of people. And the reason for that, I think, is that it is the way by which the middle class uh, makes sure that the uh, costs of crime remain strictly where they arise, namely amongst the poor, because one has to remember that not only uh, do criminals mainly come from the relatively poor uh, section of society, uh, but so do their victims. And since the class of victims is always many, many times larger than the class of perpetrators, because, of course, each perpetrator commits many crimes, it follows that failure to incapacitate the perpetrators makes many victims, and most of those victims are poor. So, in other words, the imprisonment of people like burglars is not something, is not, um, something imposed on the poor. It is a benefit received by the poor. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I was hoping, could you talk about the time you spent in the very poor, you know, sub-Saharan African uh, cities and whatnot? Why did you choose yeah. to go there, and what was it that you were looking for? I went to um, sub-Saharan Africa. Well, I had a wanderlust, a general wanderlust. I mean, I was very interested to just to travel like many people mm -hmm. like to travel. And that, that was one thing. My first time in Africa was in uh, what is now Zimbabwe. It was in Rhodesia. It was a kind of dying colonialism, and I was interested to see that colonialism before it died. Uh, of course, I had a taste for the exotic. But one of the things that I learned in Africa is that poverty, for example, does not necessarily entail violence, and it doesn't entail rudeness, uh, and in fact, for example, Tanzania, a country where I spent three years, was one of the poorest countries in the world, it probably still is, uh, but the people were exquisitely polite uh, and very, very well-mannered, so that the idea that bad manners and so forth comes directly from poverty is false. I'm sure in your studies and your works in, in those areas, you've witnessed those unimaginable crimes that I mentioned earlier, such yeah. as you know mass murders and things like that. Do you think that that is because of the lawlessness or the lack of government? I know that you are critical towards government in, say, Britain for the way that it handles its lower class. 
But in the same token, they're able to minimize or completely do away with these extremely horrible acts. Um, well, it's a difficult question because it is perfectly true that we don't have uh, mass murders in, in our societies anywhere at the moment, although it's not that long ago that in, uh, in Europe we did have uh, the worst possible mass murders. I don't think we're ever all that far from mass murder, exactly. I don't hold that, that, that uh, we are completely immune from the temptation. Uh, for example, if you take Rwanda, which I visited, uh, the idea that mass murderers are necessarily monsters who are completely different from ourselves is not true if you read uh, Jean Hartsfeld's book. Uh, where he actually interviews people who went around macheting people on a large scale, what is astonishing is how uh, how normal uh, they are. But within their small sphere, people in our countries do a great deal of evil. They only don't do it on a huge scale because there are still uh, restraints. But actually, it's it's difficult to measure evil. How do you measure evil? If you take, for example, a man I, I met in prison who threw acid in the face of his girlfriend because he was jealous. All right, that's not mass murder, but it's pretty evil. And you don't feel that that man would have all that much compunction about committing even worse crimes if he were able so I, I find it difficult to, to, to answer your question. I wanted to talk about what you said about the people, those who would go around macheting and everything, were actually not that abnormal. Do you think that it's not abnormal to them because they live in such a kind of closed-off society that they just are doing what they feel is, is right relative to where they live and instead of relative to the entire world and how we would view those things? Um, well, you can explain their behavior, and the question is how far an explanation is an exculpation. I mean, a lot of these people acted from social pressure, and there was also fear. People in Rwanda, for example, the Hutu, people often forget what happened in Burundi. They were, the, 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 one of the problems of Rwanda and Burundi is that they're mirror image societies, so that where the Hutu were in control and massacring the Tutsis in um, in Rwanda. It was the other way around in Burundi, and people forget that in Burundi in uh, in 1972, 200,000 about 200,000 Hutu, all the Hutu who had been to secondary school were massacred by the Tutsi. So this creates a kind of permanent state of fear and paranoia about what's going to happen to you if the other side gets into control. Uh, once that kind of logic is set up, you can see how people uh, might react, but still one, one is filled with astonishment that people could suddenly start attacking their own neighbors whom they'd known for a long time with machetes, uh, kill them, and then take their goods uh, and celebrate... Uh, celebrate actually these these massacres by having feasts and yet you can't say that these people are highly abnormal because when you interview them afterwards they are normal and there are too many of them 
to be abnormal. So if the circumstances are right, this is, this is why we have to pay attention to circumstances so, so closely, this, can, this potentially could be released anywhere. I don't, I don't think you can just say, well, this is Central Africa, therefore it has no, it has no application to us. Do you think that Western civilization is allowing the lower class or the unmotivated or even the criminals, however you want to define them, to prosper due to our shift towards kind of libertarianism and equality? Do you think we should go more towards survival of the fittest and let them, I mean, if you will, die out because they don't have the means to survive? Well, I, I, I don't think... Uh... I don't think I would quite put it like that. I don't like the idea of uh, whole groups, huge groups of people dying out, presumably, I, I suppose, of starvation or something like that. Right. I think what has happened is that the morale of quite a large section of Western society, uh, not just in Britain, Britain is particularly bad, but it isn't confined to Britain, has been undermined a combination of economic factors, the demand for unskilled labor, for example, has gone down in, in part, of course, because of Social Security. Social Security makes unskilled labor very expensive um, because it, it makes it more expensive to employ than the value it can add. So, um, so the whole system continues. Uh, but at the same time, the, uh, there has been an undermining of the idea that there should be a structure in life which has devastated uh, poor people. Rel when I say poor people, I mean relatively poor people. There are no absolutely poor people in, in Western societies anymore. Uh, so that, just to give you a very simple example, uh, in the hospital in which I worked, uh, you n never found a young person who... Um, had any kind of relation uh, with his or her father, practically never. I mean, when I say father, I mean biological father. In Britain now, children are more likely to have a television in their bedroom than they are to have a father living at home. And 36% of British children uh, never eat a meal at a table with any other member of their family. Never. Uh, I think you would find... In America, there are areas of the country in which something similar is going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. So this seems to me, I mean, uh, from just from the point of view of common sense, this is dreadful. And it's been, it's happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, there have been fiscal encouragements of it, but there's also been ideological encouragement of it. And the idea that it doesn't really matter uh, how families are constituted. That might, of course, be so in the upper reaches of society where people have large amounts of money and where they can compensate in some way. I mean, the fact is that money does compensate for a lot of things. Although, incidentally, families are most stable in the upper reaches. So while, on the one hand, intellectuals have been preaching the loosening, if you like, of uh, family structures, Actually, they haven't really been practicing it as much themselves as the people at the lower end of the social spectrum, where the effects have been absolutely devastating. I wanted to touch a little bit on the uh, the aspect of, of television real quick. I had read that you don't own a TV set and haven't owned one for over 30 years. 
And I, I wanted to see if you truly think that television is really eroding our our society, especially in America. Well, I, mean, I suppose it would sound a bit ridiculous to say that to answer in the affirmative. I haven't had a television for, I think it's 40 years now. Oh, wow. And uh, I don't say, I, I don't miss it. And once you haven't had it for so long, of course, it never even occurs to you to watch. It doesn't occur to you as a possibility. It's just not part of your life, which means in my case, I'm a bit odd because people who are world famous are completely unrecognizable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, as a friend of mine said, a celebrity is someone I've never heard of. <laughs> but uh, I do think the effect is pretty dreadful on the whole, especially, again, in the lower reaches of, what, of society. And what you see, actually, what you find, uh, this is a correlation, and of course correlation doesn't prove causation, but the fact is that the worse off and the more desperate the situation of a group of people the more hours they spend watching television. Now, which way round, if there is a causative relationship, people might say, oh, it's because they're desperate that they watch television. But it's not very likely that television improves, watching a lot of television improves their chances in life, improves their morale, uh, improves their determination to better themselves. I want to switch gears a little bit. I read that you're an atheist and... You became an atheist at age 14 in response to a moment in a school assembly? Well, actually, it was earlier than 14. I was about nine. Oh, okay. And um, we had to pray in school assembly. And we were told, of course, that we had to shut our eyes. And if we, uh, if we opened our eyes, God would leave. I won't go into the theology of all that. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think it's probably very orthodox. But anyway, that's what we were told. And, of course, I wanted to uh, see God leaving. If I thought if I <laughs> could <laughs> suddenly open my eyes, right. maybe I would catch, catch him uh, leaving. But instead of uh, seeing God leaving, uh, what I saw was the headmaster uh, with his beady eye surveying the children. And I came to the conclusion that he was a terrible hypocrite. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and therefore, God didn't exist. He didn't really believe that God existed, and he was telling us a lot of things that he himself did not believe. All this is not very high-powered philosophy, but that's how people form their beliefs. Right. And then I, I also wanted to ask you, a lot of people reason why mankind is here, what we're doing on Earth. They do it through belief and religion, or sometimes I think they create problems or circumstances so that they have to give themselves meaning. If yeah. you know, if you don't have the the religious beliefs, and you also don't have the inherent belief that man is good, which is kind of a it's a it's a nice feeling, although it might not be true. Where do you find your joy? Where do you find meaning? I guess it's it's a pretty grand question, but I just wanted to see yeah. your thoughts on that. Well, I'm certainly not. Um, I'm, I, although I'm not religious myself, I'm certainly not anti-religious. I'm, I wouldn't want to live in a theocracy, but uh, I'm actually quite pro-religious, and I, I no longer it no longer interests me to try and argue people out of their beliefs. For myself, I suppose my work is what gives me uh, that feeling that my life just isn't one. It's not just one damn thing after another. Right. Um, but I recognize that 
for a lot of people, their work will not provide them with that kind of transcendent meaning. And one of the things I, I think that Marxism did, I'm of course very anti-Marxist, but one of the things that Marxism did was to give people a feeling of transcendence. They were part of the march of history, and therefore there was more to their lives than the day-to-day flux. And of course, with the death of Marxism, that was that that's gone. And if you don't have religion, and also, of course, at the lower end of the uh, social spectrum, you don't actually have any fear of hunger. And if you don't have any fear of hunger, then survival itself is not a transcendent purpose because you can't do anything other than survive, really. Um, I mean, I, I once asked a Dutch audience, what would you have to do to starve to death in Holland, assuming that uh, you didn't actually go on hunger strike? How could you starve in Holland? And the fact is you couldn't. And so for people who don't have any religious belief, they don't have any real cultural interests, they don't have any deep political beliefs of, say, of a Marxist kind. They don't have any transcendence, and therefore they fill their lives with sensation. But to go back to your question, I suppose I find uh, my uh, meaning in, in writing do you think there's anything wrong with fill, filling your life with sensation? Because I, I do, I like that idea. I mean, I, I think, I personally think you're right. I'm not, a, I'm not an ascetic. I, I do go into sensation myself. And I'm a person who has enjoyed, in, enjoyed danger in my life, almost for its own sake. I don't, I don't much do it now, but I've put myself in extremely dangerous positions. And I'd love to be in dangerous positions. So I'm not against sensation in itself. I mean, it's true that when I put myself in dangerous situations, it was for some other purpose as well. So I'm not against being a sensation in itself. But when it is the whole of uh, your life, uh, it becomes insufficient. And then there becomes a kind of arms race logic of it. it. Sensation has to be more and more sensational. And one of the things, I, I, one of the causes, I think, I can't prove it, definitely, one of the causes for the of social pathology where people act in obviously self-destructive ways and put up with the most terrible violence or inflict the most terrible violence is that at least it makes their life interesting in some way. And if you don't have any religious belief, we don't have any cultural interests, then that's almost the only way you can get interest in your life. You don't get it in your work. So you indulge in social pathology and you have crises. So you live in a kind of perpetual soap opera of your own life. At least it, 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 it keeps boredom away. Right. I read that you'd interviewed over 10,000 people who have attempted suicide. And yes. I was wondering if you had seen any similarities in thought processes or common themes that kind of were glaring that you could share with us. Well, there were various um, there were various strands. Of course, in ten thousand people, you can see more than one strand. Um, there were many kinds of strands. A, a, lot, a fairly large proportion of of uh, the gestures were made um, as um, emotional blackmail. They were trying to 
get someone else to behave in a in a certain way uh, in response to the to the threat to to repeat the overdose. Uh, okay. Usually the over, it was usually an overdose. It's usually taking too many covers. I mean, there were other kinds, but there were interesting um, subgroups. For example, in England, it used to be the case that many more women than men took overdoses. But that has changed, and now more men than women are taking overdoses. And what I discovered was that many of the men, and incidentally it's mainly young people, when an old person takes an overdose, uh, the old person usually intends to die, uh, unlike the, the, the younger people. But with the young men, you often found that, in fact, in the majority of cases, uh, they were violent in their relations with women. And uh, there were three things that made them take the overdose. The first was that they might uh, want to establish a psychiatric uh, condition if there were going to be a court case because of their violence. But that wasn't very common. They also uh, presented, wanted to present themselves to uh, the person to whom they'd been violent as either remorseful or as suffering themselves. And this, of course, often worked. And they, and they also did it in order to persuade themselves that there was something wrong with themselves so that their violence didn't, wasn't really them. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. It came from outside, and this was a kind of plea for help. But actually, when you looked at the violence, what you found was that the violence in a certain way uh, was rational and it had a certain end, which was to control women. But, of course, eventually women would not put up with it and so they would then take an overdose to present themselves either as ill or remorseful, as I said. Oh, okay. And, and the woman would then come back. If you would like, please tell our listeners, I already mentioned your book, Our Culture, What's Left of It, which was amazing, and I recommend it to everyone. Um, we'll post that on our website. If if you would like um, to tell them about any other books you have out there or a website that you would like to ha lead them to. There's a book that I uh, wrote called, called Romancing Opiates, uh, Encounter Books, is about our misconception of particularly heroin addiction, but actually addictions of all kinds in which I claim that it is not principally a medical problem. Absolutely. We'll provide a link to that one as well. Um, so, again, thank you so much for your time, and we really, uh, we really appreciate what you had to say. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. I wanted to remind you to go over to iTunes, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, Five stars only. Shoot everybody you know on Facebook our link. Just send it all via email, snail mail, carrier pigeon. <laughs> Just set, you know, spread the word. Get us out there. We recently got back onto the uh, the iTunes top 100 charts. We want to thank you very much for that. Go ahead and keep spreading the word about the podcast and getting other listeners on board. And uh, keep doing keep doing your thing. Doing what you're doing. Also, as John mentioned at the beginning. If you make any Amazon purchases, go through our website. We appreciate it. And uh, music, as always, has been provided by The Outdoors. Wanted to let everybody know that they have officially released their EP, a 
five-song album. It's incredible. It was mixed by Grammy-nominated Guy Massey, who backs it. So definitely check it out. He did the Beatles. He did the Beatles. We will be posting on our Twitter page and on our Facebook page a link to how you get the free EP. It's like It takes two links and a password. That's about it. Um, feel free to share that. Check us out next week, and we will talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening.